0: This morning, I want to talk about what Jesus Christ said about family. So we're going to look at a couple passages in the Gospels, and this is honestly what I've been working toward for several weeks now, but we had to start in Genesis to look at God's pattern for the family. And I'm I'm addressing this because I've heard several family issues in our church, not with family in the church, but extenuating circumstances with extended family. The pressure from folks on the outside saying, why do you go to church so much? Why do you go to that church? Why do you got to read your Bible so much? How do I deal with this person? My son is putting pressure on me. My uncle's putting pressure on me. My, My sister's putting pressure on me. So there's a lot of stuff we need to address from the scriptures. And I think it would make a fun study if we just looked exclusively on what Jesus Christ said about family. And I've got nine points, and we'll go through them relatively quickly. But I think you won't be shocked when I tell you seven of them are not encouraging. The other two are just repeats from the Old Testament. Does it shock you that what the Lord says about family is not hallmark? And what is even more interesting is what the Lord has to say about family, that is not encouraging, he says to what is probably the most familial culture on the planet. And that is the Jews. The Jews understand family and respect family probably better than any culture we know. Because to them were given the promises, to them, they were given tribes, they were given tribal responsibilities, to them, were given laws of inheritance. You couldn't sell family land, it had to be redeemed every jubilee, every 50 years. Jubilees every 50 years. Somebody recently said something about seven years of Jubilee. I thought, your mouth is broken. The Jubilee's every 50th year. 49 and the 50th years of Jubilee. So even if you sold yourself as a slave or, or bond servant, you were redeemed every 50th year because everything remained in the family. You had Deuteronomy 6 and how you teach these to your children and your children's children. They all identified with their family. You read the Old Testament. Everybody can tell you their entire lineage. It is a very faithful, familial culture. And Jesus Christ comes along and says, and it won't be much longer. It cannot be for my sake. So no matter how close you think your families are, please understand the Jews were tighter. And no matter how faithful you think you might be or how faithful you think you need to be, the Jews more so. Even Paul felt that pull on his heart throughout his epistle writing. And he said, I wish I could be cursed that the Jews might be saved. That's how much of a a connection he felt with his quote, people. That's a cultural pull. And one of the things we have to do with the scripture is understand where our cultures are wrong, where our cultures are accurate, and where the water is, is the water of the washing of the word is much better than the blood of your family. We here, here in this region, we have, well, blood is thicker than water, which is how your weird family member manipulates you into doing what they want. So don't let anybody use that little judo move on you. Blood is thicker than water. We share the DNA. Well, we might, but we don't share the same spirit. And what we want to address this morning even goes to family members that are born again, because we're not all equally yoked in Christ. So let's just jump in here. Uh, The very first thing, we'll we'll jump back and forth. Most of what we'll look at is in Matthew, but the very first thing the Lord says about family is in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter two. This is when Jesus Christ he is 12 years old. It's the first thing we have recorded of him speaking that I'm aware of. I might miss something, but I think this is the very first thing he ever says. We don't have his first words recorded when he was a year and a half. These are the first recorded words. This is when they've gone up to the, uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, and he tarries behind and he's debating and he's learning in the synagogues and in the temple so that he is separated from his parents. Um, in verse 46, and it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple. That is the 12 year old Jesus. So I want our youth to listen to that. 12 years old, kids, 12 years old. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors. Those aren't medical doctors. Those would be like, we'd say our scholars, both hearing them and asking them questions. They're not telling them what to do. He's listening and asking questions. He's listening, and he's listening to the foremost authorities on, on the law of Moses, and he can comprehend it enough to ask them questions, and which means he's not embarrassed, he's not ashamed, he's not intimidated. He's able to, in a sense, respectfully I don't want to say go toe-to-toe, because he's not debating these doctors. he's listening and he's asking questions, which also means he's interested. He's interested. We ought to teach our children to be interested in knowing the Word of God. And I would also take a moment and encourage your parents, when your kids are asking questions about the Bible and God, it's okay to stay up another 15 minutes and answer them. Don't shut them down. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of saying, all right, girls, that's enough. It's 945, and I probably shouldn't do that because if they're asking me Bible questions, I I guess I need to get to a place where I don't care if it's midnight. We'll reap the consequences tomorrow because if they're hungry for the Bible, let's talk about the Bible. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So here, and we got to be careful trying to interpret this he's in trouble because he's kind of slipped through the crowd to go hear about himself through the law of Moses. His parents are upset because they've been worried. He doesn't apologize. Your kids should. But he tells them, did you not know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? At 12 years old, he's about his father's business. And at 12 years old, apparently that looks like listening, asking questions, and replying to questions asked you. I would assume that the answers he was giving were in comprehension questions asked him. You know, so what do you think? What does this mean to you? Or how, does this, how do you see this young, young rabbi boy or young Jewish boy? But this tells us something. Number one, we know Joseph was a man of the law of God, a man of the word, and he taught him. And he's the one that brought him to Passover and brought him to Jerusalem, one of them who taught him the law of Moses. That was the father's job. This is part of what the Lord is showing us about parenting. But at the same time, as parents, we're raising our kids to be about their father's business. And at 12, he's going into his bar mitzvah. He's about to become a son of the law and independent. He is already recognizing who he is in the word, just like our kids ought to be recognizing who they are in Christ by 12 and 13. We've taught this over and over again that um, neuroscience says that your kid's personality and brain is basically set by 13 their personality we in america we say 18 and i have a whole curriculum i wrote on why we say 18 and the reason we say 18 is because of vietnam you and i our culture of 18 year old adult maturity is based on a 60 year old war because we needed to conscript more soldiers So we dropped the adult from 21 to 18. It was based on 21, based on uh, English common law, because 21, you were an adult when you were strong enough to carry your armor off to fight in the Crusades. That's when you were an adult. That carried all the way through to Vietnam, and now we need more soldiers, so we drop it to 18. That's how fickle culture is. you're an adult at 18. Well, 60 years ago, you're an adult at 21. And according to the scriptures, you're responsible for the law of God at 13. And if you think 18 is the law, you'll quit parenting or you'll be lazy when you ought to be putting a bulk of your investment in parenting at two and three and four and seven and eight and nine and 10. I tell Lydia, sweetie, we have four more years with you. She reminds me that, daddy, you've only got four more years. And I said, yes, that's why you're going to put your leg out of that seat and chew with your mouth closed because I'm not raising an animal. Right now, I'm telling her, we're raising, you've got to be a young lady. Sweetie, I need to raise you to be a beautiful young woman because you have to attract a mate one day. And right now, you're attracting a primate. Yes, Daddy, I'm sorry. She's very good to repent. It's just she's constantly harnessing her, constantly pruning her. We sit like this. We eat like this. We talk like this. We don't do this. We don't do that. It's a lot of work. If you didn't know that, parenting is a lot of work. But let me say it again. Some of you parents, you don't realize you're raising a kid who's going to be a dud. And when you raise a dud, they're going to attract a dud. So let me throw this out there. this may offend you, let's just say you've got a daughter. Would a 22-year-old Dr. Cephas be attracted to what your daughter has to offer? Would a 22-year-old Mr. Gary, one of our elders, be attracted to your daughter? Would a 22-year-old Pastor Chris be attracted, not physically, but that's important part of it, would that 22-year-old Pastor Chris be interested in what your daughter stands for, has, represents? Or if it's a young man, if you've if you're, you got a young man, he's, you know, he's pushing towards his courtship years, is your young man becoming something a 22-year-old Miss Manda would be interested in? Or a, a 22-year-old Miss Carrie or Miss Chantel, any of our leaders that God is promoting? That's what you have to think about, because if you raise a dud, they'll draw a dud. Two duds equals a kaput. And then the kaput has a bunch of kids that end up in juvie. And it's possible to go to a great church, be taught everything, and still raise a bunch of kaput. Well, will kaput you in juvie. And then you'll graduate from that 15 to 20, doing life with an installment plan. So it's critical that your children are taught to love the Word of God and to be about their father's business even at 12. I've dealt with some of our youth boys cuz they can tell me all about Star Wars, they can tell me all about Marvel and all about DC, but they can't tell me any of the kings. If you just give a fraction of your soul to the book of the books of history, you could memorize the kings like you do Wolverine and Storm and Professor X and and the Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael, Ninja Turtles and Batman and Robin and Red Hood and, and Star Wars and I mean yeah, okay, pop culture is fun. But when are you going to get about your father's business? How long will you be weird? Because if you're weird, weird's coming for you. And at some point, you've got to stop being a man child and be a man. But the Lord Jesus looked at his mother and says, how is it you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So apparently by 12, your father has some business for you to get after. And our kids ought to be taught that. All right. So enough of that. Matthew chapter 5. So let's go back to the book of Matthew. Let's look at... That was number one. Let's look at eight more things the Lord said about family. And a couple of these we're going to stop and focus on a little bit more in depth simply because they are fitting what we're dealing with as a church family. Maybe not all of us, but there's probably enough of us dealing with some of these situations. It's worth taking a service to address. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. We've just come through the Beatitudes. He's about to start adjusting six or seven laws from the, uh, uh, the mitzvah of the Old Testament. And he says in verse 28, you've heard that it said that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, verse 28, whosoever looks on a woman to lust After her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So here's our second thing the Lord says about family, that if you'll keep your eyes and your heart pure, you can protect your marriage. He says basically looking after a woman to lust, that is with sin in your heart, that's the equivalent of adultery because adultery is of the heart anyway. It's not saying you don't look at a woman. As I'm preaching right now, I'm looking at men and women. And I'm looking at ladies, they're dressed nice. And I'm looking at uh, uh, men, they're dressed nice. And there's no lust there. So the looking is not the problem. Don't try to push that too far and say, well, I can look. No, 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 you use that as an excuse. You will be in lust. But I want you to see the Lord's basically dealing with the heart here. And he's telling us that adultery begins in the heart. And so one of the things we can take away from this as far as families is that if you'll keep your heart and your eyes pure, you can keep your marriage pure. So, gentlemen, keep your heart and your eyes pure, and you can keep your marriage pure. Sometimes women are that way. They're lusty. They're, they're kind of nasty, gross, that they are very uh, eye-driven, and they look for man candy, and they'll just look a man up and down. And I don't know if that's in you, lady, here, but don't be that way. You keep your eyes and your heart pure. You married one. Uh, yeah, dance with the one that brought you. Be happy that that's your man the Bible has to tell women many times in the New Testament, about four times, submit to your own husband. When you're discontent and miserable, you want to submit to everybody else but the one God gave you. And so dance with the one that brought you. Rejoice with the spouse of your youth. They may not be as youthful anymore, but you guys have aged together. You've put equal baggage on each other. Amen. So the other thing we get out of this verse, uh, out of this passage, I call it number three is verse 32. We get the laws of divorce, but I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, this is number three, saving for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her, that is divorced commits adultery. This is quoted again in chapter 19. They're trying to tempt the Lord. So one of the things we have here with family, this is something the Lord says about family, is that there is no cause for divorce except for infidelity. We might somehow add in our modern cultural experience abuse. We would never counsel a woman or a man, because sometimes men are abused, to stay in an abusive relationship. But we might also add unrepentant adultery and unrepentant abuse. Because it's one thing to commit adultery because who knows the calamity or the hell that was brewing in the home, but for it to go unrepentant, you just you cannot. You have permission from God to divorce someone who is unrepentant. Now, there is an argument that says this text has been corrupted and that the King James translation was a political maneuver during the 1611 translating. The only problem with that is that every subsequent translation using about 1,000 other manuscripts since 1611 has translated it identical. We still have what is called the abandonment That's 1 Corinthians 7, if the unbelieving depart, abandonment or adultery. You still have those permissions to divorce. The other argument is that, well, no, you can't divorce. It's an unforgivable sin, in which case then I would ask you why Jeremiah 3 says the Lord divorced Israel. Why did he divorce Israel? For adultery. He gave her a letter of divorcement. So this is kind of an argument in the deep theological realms. There's very little fruit on the you can't ever divorce. You can't ever remarry. It's a conflated argument that makes your head spin. You'd have to almost, you'd have to get in that weird vibe to make it make sense to you. But it's pretty apparent, except for adultery, and in 1 Corinthians 7, except for abandonment, there's no cause for divorce. So work it out. Work it out. Don't be the one that signs your divorce papers. Don't be the one that files for them. Work it out. If that person is unrepentant adulterer and they're going to abandon you, they'll file for divorce eventually. We're not promoting it. We don't want it. God hates it. But this is what the Lord said about marriage. He goes on in, in Matthew 19 that says, Whatever God has joined together, let no man divide asunder. Don't, you don't be that man. You don't be that woman. This is also why we spend so much more time on the front end of, of telling folks, you're not ready to get married. 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 And this is why I've said for over 10, 12, 13 years, marriage fixes nothing. It brings the worst out of you. Married folks, is that right? Yes, sir. Woo, did you hear that? That's the biggest response I've had in weeks in this church. <laughs> marriage fixes nothing. It brings the worst out of you because that person is there and you can't keep it bottled up. You can't keep it hidden. Now, the good news is it comes to the top and you guys can do something with it. But if you don't do anything with it, both of you get more miserable. And the devil launches a dart called, you should just get divorced. You should have never gotten married. Well, I was trying to tell you that to begin with. She didn't listen to me. You went off and got the Elvis impersonator to wedge you at the little chalet. Let me also throw this out there. My personal conviction, I will hold my daughters to it. You ought to be married in the house of God. My problem with outdoor wedding is weather. And why not do it in the house of God? If you met in the house of God, come together to the holy altar of God. Never go to the justice of the peace. What a way to spit in the face of your creator. J-O-P? Really? Who wed you? The Jop? Justice of the peace. Why would you do that? That cheapens a thing that represents Christ and the church. The only reason to do it is because you're ignorant or lusty. And don't elope. That mocks God and the families of God that have prayed for you as well. Now, if you've done any of that, no condemnation, just admit you are an ignoramus who didn't know how to honor God as you should. We're not beating you up. Other thing while we're at it, you don't find God's perfect for you on dating websites. Christian mingle, Christian single, Christian tickle, it's all sin. (laughs) You're lonely, lusty, and you don't serve God. If you'll serve God, he knows where you're at, assuming you're right where he puts you serve God, get busy working for him. And one of these days, like out of the book of Genesis, you'll look up and there she'll be. And you didn't have to swipe left. Amen. Amen. God knows how to do the matchmaking. You leave all those algorithms to the pagans. (laughs) Number four, moving right along, because these aren't the things I want to bog down on. Matthew chapter 10. This is where I think we're going to start to help a few families here. Let me share my personal background story, not to insult my parents, because they stream a lot and listen to a lot of what I have to say, but they have to acknowledge it's part of my history, it's part of theirs. When I got spirit-filled in March of 1996, it lit a fire in my soul that I could not contain. Now, I had been ramping up my hunger for God for six, eight, nine months, and the hungrier I grew for God, the more it seemed to draw me into Pentecostal circles. Now, I was raised Southern Baptist, and my parents gave me a tremendous foundation. They took me to church. I like what my friend Pastor Bobby Davis said. He, when I grew up, I had a drug problem. My parents drugged me to church <laughs> three services a week. They taught me to tie. They taught me to go to camp. They taught me to pray. Uh, they taught me the best they knew. God was, we lived our life around the local church, and I'm thankful for that. But they weren't familiar with the Pentecostal spirit-filled circles. Or if they had, they, their doctrine came from some familiar spirit like some of us who, if we, if we heard about tongues, all we'd ever heard it was of the devil. That was my doctrine on tongues when I was evangelized by a coworker who was spirit-filled. What do you think about tongues? I said, I don't know. I think it might be of the devil. Of the devil? It's in the Bible a whole lot. How can it be of the devil? Well, maybe Paul was taking it a little too literal. Too literal? People don't take the Bible literal enough. He's just chewing me out. And then like six months later, I got spirit-filled. So my parents freaked out. When they found out I was speaking in tongues and then they snuck in this church. My mama did one Sunday night about 1996 in the wild, wild, wild days of revival, which I couldn't explain what was going on then. I could now. And I remember my mama, bless her heart, she would have been like 41 to my 19 maybe 42, 43. I think she stuck her head in the door and saw these Pentecostals running in church. And I, rem- <laughs> I remember being 19 and hungry for God. Obviously, we're not running this morning, so don't get nervous. I've been trying to get most of you to lose weight for about 10 years because I want to bring that revival back. And we don't need to use the defib paddles every Sunday night on some of you. We'd shock you and you'd blow grease out your pores. I remember taking off running, and I ran a lap. As some of you Pentecostals know what I'm talking about, the Spirit of God gets on you like it used to do Elijah. And I ran. I was just running under the power of God, and I ran down that back of the church there. And somebody happened to open those back doors right as I was coming, and there sat my mama sitting on the chair looking at me. And the Bible says, quench not the spirit of God. But I said, that's not an option right now. I'm going to quench the spirit of God. I went, oh Lord, I have just been disowned by my family. And it set me into a very hard season where my parents were genuinely concerned that I was a part of a cult, they were concerned I had a demon. Now, this is what they genuinely believed with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet all I could say is I can't explain everything I'm seeing and experiencing. All I know is since I got the Holy Spirit, began praying in tongues, I can study this Bible and memorize it. I can debate anybody on that campus and run circles around them. I've never witnessed to more people in my life nor led more people to Christ one on one, since I got this baptism of the Holy Ghost. And yet here are my parents, wonderful Baptists. My mom is a preacher's kid. My dad was a a great deacon, still is. Uh, And they're genuinely concerned that I'm going to hell or that I have a demon or that I'm in a cult. And so it was scriptures like this that would soothe the soul in these kind of situations. Some of you are in similar situations. You're in a situation where your family doesn't go to a church like ours, or maybe they go once a month and they can't figure out why you go three times a week. Some of you have even told me, I think my parents would be happier if I was going to the bars than if I was coming to this church. Some of you know that experience. So the Lord says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, because sometimes we say, well, we're serving the same God. Why can't we all just get along? Verse 34 says, think not that I've come to send peace on earth. Let that sink in. Jesus Christ is declaring to his disciples, do not think I've come to fix things. Do not think I've come to send peace on the earth. Well, didn't the angel say peace on earth, goodwill toward men? That is not what the Greek says. That's only what the King James says. The angel at the Lord's birth says peace on earth towards those the Lord favors. That means not everybody gets the peace of God. So let's let the Lord Jesus do his talking here. Do not think that I've come to bring or send peace. I've come to bring a sword. So I don't understand all these preachers trying to schmooze the world, buddy up to Oprah, Larry King, and try to win the praise of the pagans. No, we ought to be difficult to handle because if you handle us wrong, you might lose some fingers because we're the sword. We have the sword of the Spirit. I have come. So this means this is part of his apostolic calling. I am come to set a man at variance against his father. Whoa, whoa, what happened to Isaiah 16? I've come to heal the brokenhearted. But this is just as much part of the Lord's calling as mending the brokenhearted. I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter at variance against her mother and the daughter-in-law I will set against her mother-in-law. This is a calling of Jesus Christ. Think about that. That's hard for us as Southerners to hear. How much harder would it have been for the Jews who we've already said were such a familial-based society that women lived with their family until they were married? Husbands or young men, they added on to their dad's estate before they took the bride. The thing was a giant extended family in every direction. You took over your father's farm. You took over your family's heritage. You, you married someone across the, the tribe. Everything was remained in the tribe. It was, it's a concept we don't understand except for when it flares up in weird, cultural, small town settings. Jesus Christ said, I am come. That means this is part of his callings. This is part of the fruit of his ministry. So please don't be upset when you serve God at a quicker pace than a loved one. And they don't like that you make them look bad, or they can't control you, or you, they don't go to the church that you were maybe raised in, or you're not, a former, you're not a Catholic, you're not a Baptist, you're not a Presbyterian, you go to a non-denominational church. I'll be honest with you, most of the denominational pastors I know are trying to move away from their titles. And a lot of my denominational friends, they're dropping the title of their denomination out of their church name so they can be more genuine. I don't know that's general, or I don't want to say genuine because they're not disingenuous, but more neutral. Because Baptist has a stigma now. Assemblies of God has a stigma now. Church of Christ has a stigma now. And a lot of these churches are trying to go to just creative name plus church. But I want you to see that Jesus Christ did not promise to fix every family He said, I am a sword, and I cut things apart. So don't be shocked if it happens to you. This is what Jesus says about family. Okay? And a man's foes shall be they of his opposite political party. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. Your foes are not the other end of the political spectrum. Jesus Christ said your enemies will arise from your own house. Even if they're spirit-filled. Just because we all speak in tongues doesn't mean we all see it eye to eye. Or that we all have the same fervency or pace. You don't have permission to slow down for anybody. And you don't have permission, once you've been given a high standard, to lower it. You hold the standard, and they come up. You don't get to come down for grandmama. You don't get to come down for your favorite daughter. You don't get to come down for your favorite brother. You come up, and if you coming up means family reunions are uncomfortable and you don't go to as many, then so be it. It's a small price to pay. We have folks in China who are dying for the gospel, and you're bellyaching trying to make it to the next family reunion, or you're being pressurized by your weird kid to do something that's not in your heart to do. It's often worse. I'll say this as I often get more respect from my pagan friends and pagan family than I do the Christian ones. I think I could safely say that I, I probably am more respected as a preacher in my extended family among the pagans than I am among the Christians or the self-proclaiming Christians in my families. Because to the pagan, hey, that's the reverend, that's the preacher. They defer to me. What you know, you're the expert here, Chris. They don't call me pastor, I don't want them to. But it's all my family members that play Christian games that want to equalize me or not even listen to anything I have to say. So it's almost like the Lord Jesus said, You'll have more respect away from your own family. What was the one church service that almost ended in the murder of God? But when Jesus preached to his hometown and his extended family, in synagogue, these are the, this is the family in the community. He went to church with every Sabbath growing up, and he doesn't even get his whole sermon out. And they get so mad at him, they try to push him off a cliff and end the service with death. That's his own hometown. And he never went back there again, never preached to them again. I don't think he ever went back to a family reunion. I don't think he felt obligated to go there for Thanksgiving. When you are more familial than you are spiritual, you'll be manipulated by anything that shares DNA. And that's wicked. I have never once tried to pull any of my family members to my church. My parents live 82 miles from here. I could easily say, you guys are getting older. I think you should come and be a part of it. I know it won't work. I'm glad they don't go to church here. I love them, but they are wonderful Baptists, and they are a blessing to their Baptist church. They've been a tremendous asset to them. I don't want them coming to church here because it's not going to work. I have very few friends who pastor whose parents are able to serve there with them because it just doesn't work. I have my friend, Pastor Jeremy in Texas, both his dad and mom and his father-in-law and mother-in-law serve him in the ministry because they've all been in full-time ministry together, and they understand how to submit, and they recognize appointings and anointings and callings. It's one of the few people I've ever seen at work. You've got to understand of your own household shall your enemies arise, and that's okay. It's a promise of God, just like healing and provision. In a great household, not everybody's going to chase Jesus at the same pace. And you don't have permission to slow down. Amen. Verse 37 He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Notice you have to love Jesus more than family. And what if God calls you to go someplace across the country or across the world? Are you going to let manipulation keep you out of the will of God? Because if that's the case, you're not worthy of God. These are the red letters of Jesus Christ. It does not surprise us that his sayings of the family are not encouraging. But he's having to dismantle a culture that is so familial, that the infrastructure is so tight-knit, he'd rather save a few than lose them all. He that does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Maybe cutting family off or putting boundaries up, that might be the real cross for you because you don't know how to function without family. Some of you have never known your family, so this preaching means nothing to you. And that's okay. But we have enough situations right now where people are being pressured by family, mom and dad, cousins, brother, sister, even best friends, that they're trying to pull you out of your walk with God. And now I make this observation. Isn't it funny they feel at liberty to criticize you and to be concerned about you? But what would happen if the next time that conversation took place, you flipped the script and you began to voice to them your concerns about their marriage and their hobbies and their booze and their porn addiction and their obesity? When's the last time you told your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law, hey, I know you're concerned about me, but why are you so fat? Why are your kids so fat? I mean, y'all are big. We're we're talking about the Bible, right? You know, fruit, self-control is a fruit, right? You know, Paul said he keeps his body under like an athlete, right? I don't see that happening in your life. If you you could maybe push a little further when you have these uncomfortable conversations with your extended family that want to manipulate you and you bring up the biblical concerns you have in their life, they might actually leave you alone. So all right. Is that your concern for me, brother of mine? Is that your concern for me, grandfather of mine? Is that your concern for me, uncle of mine? Can I give you a couple of my biblical concerns for your life since we're like loving each other right now? (laughs) Yeah. Just try that. Just ask them. All right. Can I ask why, son, you don't control your marriage? Can I ask you why, wife, you flirt with men at work? Can I ask you why your kids don't serve God? Can I ask you why you guys only go to church once a month? Why are you so concerned about me? Have you ever noticed the hypocrisy of how these conversations work? They always have your answer and you're always in the wrong, but you are never given the the opportunity or the liberty to express your concerns. That's how you know it's immaturity and manipulation. Manipulation. I just don't tolerate it. And honestly, when it works in my life over the years, I've learned I just I don't answer. I don't have time for this. I, many times I feel like Nehemiah telling Sambalit, Tobiah, and Gisham and the other dingling Arabians I don't have time to come off this wall for you. Now, if you want to grab a brick and a sword and get to work, we can hang out all day long. We're, we're friends up and down this wall right here. You guys. I don't know what your problem is. Sometimes you just need to tell your family, you're just jealous that I serve God better than you. You're just jealous. God loves us both, but he likes me more. Here's the other stupid lie I've heard. Well, you can serve God anywhere. Really? Kind of like I can pastor anywhere? Kind of like I can marry anybody. Kind of like I can take a mission trip just anywhere. Kind of like I can just do what I want to do. Maybe that's how they view the kingdom because of the lawlessness in their heart. But you can't just serve God anywhere. God has set you in the body as it has pleased Him. Your life is not your own. You've been bought with the price. You're set where he wants you. You have to figure out where that is and then let no Tobiah, no Geshem, no Sambalic come and pull you out of your place. Because Romans 12 tells us there is a good and acceptable and then there's a perfect will. And I don't, Pastor Vaughn would have fought you tooth and toenail 20 years ago. There's really nothing but the perfect will. So why would you settle for, you can serve God anywhere when you can have the perfect will of God. When I'm in the perfect will of God, I can demand of God, and he will answer me. When I'm in the permissive will, the the good will, the general will of the ignoramus who hasn't met Christ deep enough yet, I can't necessarily count on God because I'm not where he needs me to be yet. So why would I come off the wall he's commanded me to build? Because, you know, you can build any wall anywhere you want to, Chris. Why are you guys in church so much? Because I love God. Why don't you go to church more? Because you don't love him. Just because they go to church doesn't mean they're spiritual. Just because they speak in tongues doesn't mean they know God. Of our own households, will enemies arise? And an enemy is anybody that wants to pull you off your race. And it's okay if you outserve everybody around you. The Lord said, I have been anointed of, with joy above my own brethren. Amen. You're awfully quiet. You're processing this because we've all got family that's this kind of weird. Yes. Somebody in your family's got to make heaven. Might as well be you yes. and not make it of a heart attack 20 years too early because they're fat. Yes. <laughs> Might as well be you finish the race. We boast about it. I'm the first family to go first person to go to college. How about be the first person to finish your race? Yes. We're the first folks to have kids in marriage. I'm going to be the first family to get all your kids to heaven. Amen. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. So there's a lot of people Jesus is saying, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. You're not worthy. Wait, wait, where's the huggy, kissy, lovey Jesus that just wants us to have our best Tuesdays and every day a harvest day and every day dreamy? And all the Lord's saying here is, you're not worthy, 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 you're not worthy. He's trying to get them to come up. And at the same time, he's deconstructing the Jewish family system because he knows not everybody among the Jews in this dispensation is gonna follow him as a messiah. And he's got to begin to cut down the social structure that the law of Moses built. And we're Southerners, most of us. We got just a weird thing going like they did. And it would be wonderful if we could serve God with our brothers and sisters we grew up with. But we can't always do that. Even in this church... I'm proud that we have multi-generational families here. We have grandparents with grown kids who have their marriages and their grandkids, and they're all serving together. But even in those family units, in this church this morning, right now in this sanctuary, it isn't all equal. Sometimes the kids have outgrown grandma and grandpa. Sometimes the grandkids are hungrier than all of them. And there'll come a time I may have to counsel one of the grandkids and say, you can't come down for grandma. You can't come down for your mom and dad. you got to press on for Jesus. This is what we've prayed for years, that you would outrun us. So don't you dare look back. You march on. Amen. Amen. And if it offends somebody, well, they can get right with God. And maybe to get right with God, you got to first get with God. Amen. All right, so you enjoyed that one so much. It felt really good, really warm and fuzzy. Jesus, and my footnote just says, Jesus will divide families. So be it. So be it. I have a brother in Florida. I love him. We're closer now than we've ever been. I talk to Africans more regularly than I talk to my brother. We're not mad at each other. We love each other. We text each other. We cut up. We have fun when we're together. But I talk talk to Africans in Africa more regularly than I talk to my own brother. Because it's my work. Because I'm doing something for the kingdom. That's my calling. My brother and his family, they serve God at their church down in Florida. But I talk to other ministers. I have more fellowship with ministers around the world than I do with some of my own family. I don't say that to brag. I say that it's just kind of how it works. There's a grace to pursue relationships in Kenya, in Congo, in South Africa, in Uganda, in Nigeria. I don't have... I don't have grace to pursue relationships with family in Louisiana or Georgia. I just don't have a grace to. I have to chase where the Lord points me. Now, if some of those family members, if their heart turns, they might curve and we might cross paths again. Of all my cousins, I'm only close to one, my fellow pastor cousin, Cousin Phil. We text on a regular basis. We talk on a regular basis. We we talk ministry together. But we have that in common. And if you'll walk with Jesus Christ long enough, you'll find you'll outwalk people and they'll fall off. You don't you don't wish them ill, you don't want bad for them, but you don't have permission to chase them. You chase Jesus Christ. And it will separate people in your life. So quit being so weird and southern, thinking that because you gave birth to them, you owe them everything the rest of your life. The blunt say if you do this right, you raise your kids to leave. Be gone, be free. We'll see you at Christmas. Serve God. Hey, how about about we spread out and change the world as a family instead of huddle our little weird commune thing together? I mean, a lot of churches are just one step away from being Branch Davidian, Waco, Wacko. Has there been any fresh blood in that ministry? Or is it just family, 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 family? Before long, the kids start looking the same in the youth group. (laughs) Matthew chapter 15. Here's number five. He said in verse three, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother. Is Jesus crazy? He just said... I'm going to cut your father off from you. But here he says, I said you honor your mom and dad. They're both accurate. You honor mom and dad, but you don't stop to chase them. You can have no fellowship with your mom and dad and still honor them. If your mom's a prostitute and your dad's a corrupt drug dealer, you can't fellowship with them, but you can still honor them. Honoring them is not the same as obeying them and at being, jumping at every, every wake and call, every jot and tittle, every, every beck and call. That's not honor. That's Control. So Jesus is not schizophrenic, but he's also giving us both ends of the spectrum. On one end, you've got to be willing to leave mom and dad if that's what God's calling you to do. The Scudders, who are on their way back from Uganda right now, they're, they're in Europe right now coming over, or they're on their way to the airport in Uganda, and they'll be here tomorrow night. They had to leave everything here in the States and mom and dad and Christmases and birthdays and vacations and Mother's Days and Fourth of Julys to go obey the will of God. And yet they can still do that and honor mom and dad. When Pastor Brett's daddy died of COVID complications a couple months ago, he had just gotten back to Uganda. His daddy died, and he had to turn around and fly back to New York to honor his dad. He was able to obey God and be a missionary for nine years, and then when his daddy died, he'd been in Uganda, I think, a week and had to turn around and fly back through COVID to go honor his dad at the funeral. That's honor. Honor is not the same as blind obedience. Amen. So here the Lord is saying, we do honor your father and mother. And the law says, if you insult or curse or, or cuss out your mother and father, you should be put to death. Now, if that was alive today, we wouldn't have youth groups. <laughs> they would be gone. Soap in the mouth would look so mild, not even mild soap. It just, somebody, said, somebody in the church, I shouldn't even say what they, okay, we'll keep it anonymous. They use apple cider vinegar just squirt it in their mouth like like a cat. You run your mouth, just spritz apple cider vinegar. It's edible. Some people, apparently it fixes everything. (laughs) Curing your addiction to food burns your tongue off. But they use that to wash a mouth out uh, when they're sassy or say dirty words or have attitude. Under the Old Testament, you insulted your mom and dad or you cursed them, they just stoned you. How many times does that have to take place in the local tribe before we don't have it again? (laughs) All you'd have to say is, remember Benjamin? (laughs) Yeah, don't go there. So we see the Lord Jesus is affirming that we honor mom and dad. And one of the ways we honor them is we don't give them a lip. Some of you, you let your three-year-olds talk back to you. Wait till they're 13. And he says, uh, verse six, actually verse five, but you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. This is a, a, an issue with a thing, uh, Mark's gospel calls it Corban, which is a gift. Basically it says, I had something I was gonna take care of you. I have some money I could use to help you with mom and dad, but I've already dedicated it to God. And the Pharisees were using it as a way to not have to take care of mom and dad. Anytime that extra money, they said, I'm sorry, it's already devoted to the Lord. And they would use God as an excuse to basically neglect their parents. And they were using it as an opportunity to not honor mother and father. So that's kind of the complicated issue here. Verse 6 says, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. So the, the Pharisees were teaching, if you've already devoted the money to God, you don't have to honor mom and dad. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah the prophet of uh, uh, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, These people draw near unto me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So here the Lord is equating dishonoring mom and dad as being hollow worship. But this is the, this is the juxtaposition. This is the antithesis. The previous chapters said you have to love God more. You have to be willing to cut off mom and dad. Jesus Christ is a sword He will bring a variance between you and your parents. And yet here he's voraciously, uh, vociferously defending honoring mom and dad so much that you don't even speak against them. But both are accurate. You honor mom and dad. You know, if you honored mom and dad, you wouldn't manipulate them. Because some of our young people, they know how to get money out of their parents. They know how to make their... Some of our young people have us wrapped around their little finger. And that's manipulation. That's using words to dishonor your mom and dad. And the Lord condemns that. And so... Maybe you ought to learn to teach your children not to manipulate you. Maybe get that little squirt bottle and spritz them and teach them how to earn things with respect. Amen. Amen. I, hate, I hate manipulation. It's so wicked. The Bible says witchcraft is manipulation. Witchcraft. Manipulation is witchcraft. It's you using your mouth to try to control people who don't have a heart to do what you want them to do anyway. If my heart's not in it, why would you want me to do it? It wouldn't be genuine and sincere anyway. So verse 9 says, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. So that's number five. I want to show you there that God is still wanting us to honor mother and father, and we don't curse or insult mother and father by giving something to God. Uh, But at the same time, our number four point was that Jesus brings a sword that will divide us away from mother and father. We can be divided away from family and still honor them. The best way to honor anybody is to pray for them. Number six, Matthew chapter 19. We're almost done. You're doing good. And we have communion this morning. Matthew chapter 19. Here he is quoting Adam. The Lord Jesus Christ is quoting Adam, verse 5 in Matthew 19, 5, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. That's quoting the words of Adam in the garden when he saw his wife for the first time. Verse 6, therefore they are no more twain or two, but one flesh. Therefore, uh, what God therefore hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So we see this confirmation that God wants to bring um, husband and wife together. Man and wife, man and wife, wife, one man, one wife, one man, one wife, one man, one wife, till death do them part. It's a confirmation of what family. Here's one of the few positive affirmations on family in the scripture or in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Number seven. This one is, fascinates me. Um, we're still in chapter 19. Look at verse 16. And behold, one came unto him and uh, said unto him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? This is number seven. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life... Keep the commandments. He said unto him, which which ones? Now, this is a story of the rich young ruler, right? We're all familiar with this story. And Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Now, pay close attention. Five of those commandments should be very familiar to you. They are part of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue is divided into two stones, the four commandments that direct your behavior toward God and the six commandments that direct your behavior toward mankind. So you have five of the six human commandments. Which one is missing? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Honor your mother and father. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Who's he talking to? What do rich people do? They covet. Isn't it interesting? All all three accounts, the Lord omits that one. This rich young ruler claims to know the law, you think he'd stop and say, why did you leave that one off? Because you don't get rich without coveting. And all the other direction, all the other ones are actions towards people. Honor, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus chapter 19. All these are actions towards people, but I find it fascinating. So the solution to his covetousness is what? What's the Lord tell him to do? Go sell all that you have and give it all away. Wouldn't it just be easier just not to covet? but he had a hard lesson to learn. That's just an interesting side note on that story there. But here we see the Lord affirm once again, you have to honor your father and mother. Honor, 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 honor. Honor doesn't mean obey. Honor doesn't mean live under their feet. Honor doesn't mean trip over them. Honor means you pray for them, you respect them, and you say to them and act towards them as the Holy Spirit is saying and acting toward them. You can't, not all of us can have fellowship with all of our parents. What if our parents are in prison? What if they're on drugs? What if they're on Skid Row? What if they're Antichrist? What if they're worshiping the devil? What if they're a a pedophile? You can't honor these folks, or excuse me, you can't obey them. The only thing you can do is honor them through prayer. And listen, just because they gave birth to you or just because you gave birth to them doesn't mean the Spirit of God will permit you to do everything they daydreamed you should do for them. You've got to be able to get around a person and see what does the Spirit of God say to you in relation to them. Does the Spirit of God permit me to fellowship with them? I don't fellowship with all my cousins. Some of them are so far backslid, we have nothing in common. I've got some cousins that they're, they're churchgoers, but they're total fornicators. I would, I would have more, greater ease fellowshipping with my lesbian cousin than my fornicating churchgoing cousins, because the lesbian cousin doesn't pretend. But the fornicating choir singers, they're total frauds you got to be able to pick up on what the Spirit of God is saying to you around family members because just because your blood doesn't mean you have to sit down and eat together. Just because your blood doesn't mean you've got to go to church together. Just because you have the same last name doesn't mean you've got to go to family reunions together. Hey Amen. We've got to be smarter than this. We've got to break off these shackles of weird Southern or whatever your culture is, tradition. Or you may just follow your family into the pit of hell. Number eight. Same chapter. The disciples say, Lord, this is really crazy. How can, because they thought rich people had it all together. How can rich people go to heaven? And the Lord says, it's real hard, but it's possible. Verse 27 1927, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. Forsaken all, family, wealth, possessions, moms, dads. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory... You shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, which was very important to the covenant of the Jews, especially Deuteronomy 8, you shall inherit goodly houses. This is part of the provision of God. He's saying you have forsaken those houses and brethren and forsaken sisters and forsaken your father and your mother or your wife. Sometimes God destroys marriages because of paganism. There's been more than one man of God or woman of God. Their husband just splits and disappears because they refuse to quit serving Jesus Christ. Sometimes you lose a spouse because you won't quit serving God. Or children. You might lose children because they don't want to serve daddy's God. Or lands. For my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit an in everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So basically, my number eight is forsake all, gain all. To me, this is a very simple thing. I'm convinced that just like every Christian has to pass the money test, and you'll have to pass the dream test, that is, are you willing to sacrifice your dream and flush it? You're going to have to pass the family test and prove to God your family holds no sway over you concerning the plan of God for your life. Now, praise God if your family can serve God with you and you can serve God with your family. Praise God if you can use your dad or your granddad as a source of counsel and wisdom. But I would say the chances are probably slim for most of us. Not because they're not good people, but because they're just at different places in the world. And you have to be okay with that. I'll, let me open up the curtain and let you know I can't fellowship with everybody in my ministry affiliation. My pastor oversees hundreds of pastors, and I'm friends with, I say pastors probably, over, my pastor probably oversees, maybe I think he said 1,400 ministers. I might be friends with 200, maybe. I can probably healthfully fellowship with 20 or 30 of them just because either we don't have something in common, something's not quite right. It's not my place to pastor them. It's just, I can't, just because we're in the same affiliation doesn't mean I I can fellowship with you. I want to, but I've told you there's a lot of preachers I get around and I'll even tell my wife, something's not right there. I, I can't be with them. But you'd think if I could fellowship with anybody as a preacher, it would be another preacher. You have to be wise as serpents, and don't let this whole blood is thicker than water thing trip you up. Last one, Luke chapter 15. Number nine, last one. Are you learning anything? Is it helping you calibrate mama or nephew? I once had an uncle try to warn me about speaking in tongues, and I thought if there was anything I was going to let you warn me about, it would not involve God. I've been, you know, I've been alive 28 years. I've known you this whole time. You've never helped me with anything in the kingdom. And now because you heard I'm spirit-filled, you have a word from God for me? Go on the back deck and smoke your cigarettes. How come I don't get to adjust you? It just it really bugs me, the audacity and the arrogance of some of our family members. They may mean well, but they don't know much. I have learned that that you can't force wisdom on people and you can't force plans on people. You can't force counsel on people. Jesus even told, he's the son of God. He said, I have many things to say unto you. You can't hear him yet. And yet sometimes when we're arrogant, lonely, selfish, or just weird, we steamroll everything we know onto people, hoping they'll obey us. I'm not interested in you obeying anybody but Jesus Christ. I don't want my family to obey anybody but Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 9. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15. This is number nine. This is a story of the prodigal. So the Lord has something to say about our wayward kids. Let me summarize it real simply because we're over out of time. You know the story. Verse 24. For this my son was dead. So here's the word for prodigals. Treat them like they're dead. What do you mean by that? Quit sneaking them burger money. Quit carrying all their stupid sin load. Quit quit acting as a buffer of unrighteousness so that they don't get what they deserve. Some of you are so stupid when it comes to your prodigal twit. You're going to help send them to hell and it's going to happen soon because you don't realize how incompetent you are with your prodigal. I've warned you, I've told you, I've warned you, I've told you, and your kid ain't getting any better. If you want the prodigal to return, treat him like a prodigal. The prodigal came to his dad and said, I want my inheritance, which in Jewish terms is, I wish you were dead. So the son basically said, you're going to treat me like I'm dead. And the father said, here you go. And off he went. And they had no interaction, no contact, no help, no communication until that punk that unthankful, ungrateful, unholy wretch was tired of eating feces. To a Jew, eating pig manure is the basis of things. Because remember, pigs are unclean, super unclean. He's feeding hogs, eating their husks. He came to himself because there was nobody else to help him. So you want to know how to send your prodigal to hell? Treat them like they're still alive. Treat them like they deserve your goodness, your help, your home, your bed, your babysitting. You just keep, you just keep their little lifeline fed. You're going to send your kid to hell. I'll do the funeral, and I'll make everybody uncomfortable because I won't, I won't flower the thing up. Told you Jesus didn't have positive stuff to say about family because you know why? We're bad at it. We're weird with it because, unfortunately, God's not more real to us. Family is. That's my little baby. That's my little bud. That's my little princess. No, no, no. That's a whore. That's a punk. No, no, you've perverted judgment. Understand, please, that when you give birth to a child, you give birth to a blind spot. And he can be 40 and still be your blind spot. She can be 28 and be your blind spot. And you and I have got to stick with this Bible over anybody. And just as as soon as you and I think we're committed to Jesus Christ, we'll find out we're not as committed as we thought we were. You've got to pray, Lord, may I never pervert judgment. May I never pervert judgment. May I never have a blind spot for my kids. I know a lot of preachers that do, and their kids are often the blight of their ministry. Amen. So we should end on a positive note before we receive communion. Here's the the positive note. The prodigal's father never stopped praying, never stopped looking, never gave up hope that he knew eventually that money would run out and that hungry belly would bring humility. But that's biblical. If you don't work, neither should you eat. I don't know why some of you fund your prodigals. You are dumb people. Why would you waste money on dumb sin and rebellion? Amen. I have a dear friend. Their, one of their adult children went prodigal, and they were praying that it'd be miserable, praying that they would be miserable, praying that it'd be miserable, and the kid wasn't coming back until they found out grandma was sneaking them money, hundreds of bucks a month. Not my friend was furious, because that's wicked. Grandma has zero authority over the grandchild. And when the grandma is going around mom and dad's authority, grandma's helping to send grandson to hell. That's a perversion of justice. That's a perversion of scripture. Amen? I thought I was going to get positive. All right, so let's go back positive. I'm trying some positive, trying some positive. So, how do we get the prodigal back? We starve him home. It's amazing what a hungry belly will make you do. Yes. You just you say, i give anything to have something to eat right now. I will repent. I will, I will do anything. But as long as you're slipping on money, you're a perverter of justice. And you'll curse your own home. Wherever you put your money, you receive of their sin. It's like a, it opens up like a valve. It's a two-way street. So if you have a prodigal, some of you do. Some of you, it's like all you've known is your prodigal. They've never had any signs of any hope or any goodness. It's because you've always financed their sin. We got mad when Obama sent Iran, you know, like $50 trillion on pallets of cash. That's just as stupid as funding a prodigal kid. Some of you have brought your prodigals home by hanging them out to dry and letting them hit rock bottom. The promise of the prodigal is that you will treat them like a prodigal, they'll return, and you'll have the end of the prodigal story. And if you don't treat them like the prodigal's father, you won't get the prodigal's return. They'll die in a foreign country, and you'll never know what happened to them. In this day and age, you'll find out on Facebook. So those are nine things the Lord said about family, and they're kind of bleak. Because mankind doesn't know how to work family very well. But if we'll stick with the Bible, we can have beautiful families. That's, there's one more. Well, there was another one in Luke. He says, your families will deliver you up to be killed. I didn't cover that one. That was like too hopeless. <laughs> Other than that, I've covered everything Jesus said about family. You would think the gospel would be more encouraging and lovey than that. I covered everything there was. Most of those repeated in all three of the, the synoptic gospels. John doesn't say anything about family. He doesn't say anything about Mary. I didn't cover that one either. Who is my mother? Who is my brethren? John leaves that one out. Jesus said, I'll tell you who my brothers are, those that obey my father. I'll tell you who my mama is, she that does the will of my father. We didn't cover that one either. That would have been number 10. Not a lot of positivity out of the Gospels on family. Why is that? The more you study the Gospels, the less Joel Osteen they sound. But it is what it is.